everybody. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Tech Strong Women, where we feature amazing women doing amazing things in tech. I'm Jody Ashley, executive producer here at Tech Strong, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Tracy Reagan and Rebecca August. But before we introduce today's guest, I want to give you a quick update on what's happening here at TechStrong. Coming up on October 4th, we have our Cloud Container Security Summit. If you're interested in attending, or even better, speaking at the event, please go to techstrongevents.com to sign up. And be sure to tune in to techstrong.tv every day for great shows and interviews. Hey, Rebecca, what do you have on tap for this week? Sure. Nope. So my biggest thing with this week, my greatest find was um, a cybersecurity girl or cybersecurity underscore girl on Instagram. She was giving out great tips on how to tell if your data has been compromised. So I really loved how she was spreading, how she's been spreading great information about cybersecurity and also bringing in like droves and droves of crowds of people just saying thank you you for all the information that she's been sharing lately and hoping to have her on the show with us pretty soon here. All right. That's amazing. Trace, what's your news for the week? <laughs> well, uh, Rebecca, what is her name? I want to watch. Yes. <laughs> what is her name? Her name is Caitlin, but on Instagram, you find her as cybersecurity underscore girl. And you got that it. Is I'm going to check her out because cybersecurity is awful. You know, it's a, it's a pretty big uh, conversation right now. Finally, we are having that conversation. Um, so I've been watching the news lately and the Linux Foundation has been kind of busy with creating new foundations. Um, <laughs> two came across. Uh, one is called uh, PyTorch and it is being donated by Meta, which uh, AKA oh, wow. Facebook. And it is um, similar to TensorFlow for basically managing workflows around machine learning. That's the best way to describe it. Um, I find it pretty fascinating that the PyTorch itself is gonna have a complete foundation. Um, it should be an interesting one to watch. There are, I think uh, Google and Microsoft as well are uh, part of that foundation. And the goal is to start making AI easier to program. Um, TensorFlow already has done that. Uh, apparently, PyTorch is a little different in that it is more specific to uh, Python programmers, so making it easier for Python programmers. The other thing that came up, which I think is totally fascinating, <laughs> is the, um, the Linux Foundation started another foundation around um, a wallet. So they have created a basically a... a, a, a a foundation for managing um, an, what they call the Open Wallet Foundation. They're not going to be creating a um, blockchain e uh, themselves, but they want to build a blockchain ecosystem uh, through access to open source technology. This one, I think, is the one to watch. Um, I have just recently started getting into the fun of uh, blockchain. It's always fun to, to learn new things. That's kind of what I'm doing right now. I just went to a blockchain conference last week and my brain was really full after the first half a day. Uh, but the idea of these open source tools around um, an open wallet, uh, I find pretty fascinating because I, as I learned, even though we have a blockchain technology, there is quite a bit of work to be done around supporting that blockchain technology, particularly around programming in it. 
and our, our Ortelius, the Ortelius project, which is part of the CD Foundation, uh, received a grant to build out a, an immutable SBOM using blockchain technology, which is how I ended up at this conference. Um, so those are the two things to watch, the, uh, the PyTorch, uh, as well as the Open Wallet uh, Foundation through the Linux Foundation. So those yeah, are my got tips. Got a lot of going week. on. They've got a lot going on over there. They're relaunching the CDF as well, the continuous delivery. Um, that's a we're we're actually going to be doing a show with them that I'm getting ready to launch. So they're so busy over there for sure. Which All is right. where I met uh, Tara. Is that great? <laughs> yeah, we're excited to be part of their relaunch. So I'm 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 excited to get that show started for um, for them. So we like to partner with them. They're a great team over there. Well, speaking of Tara, <laughs> I'd like to introduce Tara Hernandez. She's our guest today. Tara, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hello. Hi. Um, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, so as you said, my name is Tara Hernandez. Uh, I am currently the vice president of developer productivity at MongoDB. Um, that's relatively recent. Previously, I was at uh, Google and a swath of other companies. Um, been around almost 30 years now in the industry, and it's been really wild to see how it's evolved, particularly in my space. Um, coming in, my first job was at a company called Borland International, which did compilers and databases back in the day. Um, I think it was my, I started there in 1993, something like that. Um, and uh, I got a job in something I had never heard of, which is build engineering or release engineering. And I found my, my true passion, which is development infrastructure. Um, so I've written a lot of make files and written a lot of Perl and Python and other types of scripts and developed tools. Um, while I was at Netscape, I uh, helped develop an early continuous integration system called Tinderbox that we open sourced as part of Mozilla.org. Uh, we also open sourced a, a web-based bug tracking system, which I think was first examples of um, web-based developer tooling out into the wild. And that was in, what, 1998, I think. Um, I've worked at a variety of different companies with a primary focus around development infrastructure. I was at Pixar Studios, um, helping uh, a lot of their software is proprietary, so helping develop good development software, software development best practices in support of the movies that are being developed, because it's all CG animation. Um, did a stint at Google where I was not doing development infrastructure, um, and it was a, an opportunity to kind of test out being more product aware and, and trying new roles, and I learned a ton, and one of the things I learned was I really love development infrastructure, so here I am at MongoDB back to, back to where I belong, um, and one of the cool things about MongoDB is it has an, an open source CI system called Evergreen, which was custom built in order to support database development. So MongoDB is the corporation uh, that wraps around MongoDB, the open source NoSQL database. So the development infrastructure around how do you develop that uh, in a highly scalable way uh, is an interesting technical challenge. And that's what I'm working on right now. And as Tracy mentioned, it was one of the, uh, while I was at Google, I was privileged to be part of the founding of the Continuous Delivery Foundation. Uh, and it's an organization I am uh, very pleased to be part of. And uh, getting to meet Tracy was one of the, certainly one of the benefits. Well, thank oh. you. And you know, that is a fascinating topic, CI around databases. <laughs> yeah. It's How hard. long have we had that conversation? It's like, why is the database never part of the, of the CI workflow? How did that get left behind? Because half the time you can't do a deployment if you can't track the database changes as well. So 
I'm, I didn't, I had never heard of that. So I'm super glad to have heard that today because it makes me very excited. <laughs> it doesn't take much. I'm easily amused, but that is really cool. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, you can go to GitHub and look for Evergreen and, uh, you know, it's not part of the CDF yet, but who knows? I was just going to ask that question. Do you think you guys could <laughs> contribute that to the CD foundation? We should have that conversation at some point. We definitely should have that conversation. I am so open to that. So Todd, um, you know, let's just to get this party really started. Um, tell us what you're seeing, um, you know, kind of where you're at, where your headspace is at right now. What are some of the challenges you're seeing and what are some of the pivots that you're starting to see um, in the space, in your area of expertise? So, you know, that's a great question. You know, like I said, I, I got into development infrastructure of some form all the way back to the 90s. And at the time, it was the thing that was like, oh, well, that's what you do when you're not a real engineer, right? So you're just the build monkey or whatever it is. <laughs> um, true story. Uh, when we released things like Tinderbox and Bugzilla as part of Mozilla.org, we hired this guy by the name of Paul Bigger, who was the Tinderbox maintainer for Mozilla at the time. And he looked at it at Tinderbox and he was like, wow, this is kind of a cool idea, but oh my God, that's a terrible code base, which is true. I mean, I don't, I'm, I'm paraphrasing what I'm sure he was thinking when he looked at this Perl CGI with inline HTML. And it was a truly horrific implementation, but he then turned around and founded CircleCI, right? Because he actually was an entrepreneur, had an entrepreneur spirit and recognized that there was a value proposition in developer tools. Um, and since then, you look around and you see companies, you know, Kosuke, uh, you know, invented Hudson, then Jenkins, and now there's CloudBees, and there's CircleCI, and there was the, I think, TravisCI, sorry, um, uh, uh, GitHub, right? It's when uh, when DBCS uh, became a thing, or GitLab, or, and, and now developer tools is actually real engineering, first of all. Uh, it finally has the respect it deserves, because shipping software is actually really hard. Uh, and it, it takes a lot to do it properly. Um, and then you had uh, coming out sort of the, what does it mean to successfully ship software? And then you had things coming out like DevOps and and to me, more importantly, the state of DevOps report. And then of course, Nicole and Jean and Jez wrote Accelerate to, to really talk about that and the research. And, and then that evolved into more recently, um, Nicole and her team had the space framework for developer productivity. And so now developer productivity is the new hotness and you see companies like Code Climate or, or GitDX or, you know, and various uh, Haystack, you know, there's now dozens of companies that are emerging solely to solve the problem of how do you do developer productivity as efficiently as possible, right? And so we've kind of come all the way around to it being this thing that was like, eh, that's just details, right? It's not that important to, this is one of the hottest areas of, of the industry from a technical standpoint. Um, because we have gone also from, you know, 18 month, 24 month release cycles to continuous deployments where you could go out, you know, per commit potentially, uh, if you're super aggressive about your hosted SaaS platform. Um, and I think it's just the, the speed of which this area has evolved is just tremendous. Uh, and it seems like every time I took, turn around, there's some new thing that somebody's trying, right? And it and developer stack has had an enormous impact uh, on the industry as a whole. You know, the Linux Foundation exists because companies realized that that using operating systems as a mechanism to sell hardware was not a good long-term strategy. Okay, let's let's all decide that Linux is actually in the Unix space um, the way to go, and let's all collectively agree to fund 
you know, Linus Torvalds and his team to, to maintain it. Um, that was like a, a, a really interesting sort of milestone. And then you, as you evolve, then you have, oh, well, here's this container thing that this company Docker is, has encapsulated and tried to create better abstractions for to, I mean, the, it was always there, but it wasn't very accessible. Let's make it more accessible. Oh, well, now how do you do that at scale? And you had companies like Mesosphere um, uh, giving it a try, but it, that was a little bit too much overhead. And then Google released Kubernetes. And of course, when Kubernetes first came out, it wasn't super usable, but then eventually they realized, hey, there's something there. Hey, let's use this model with the Linux Foundation to really try to create an industry standard. Okay, now we have the CNCF. Um, and that spawned uh, you know, a wealth. And you look at the CNCF landscape, there's like thousands of elements. Um, and this is all based on not necessarily you know, what we think of when we think of high tech industry is providing, you know, business solutions or consumer solutions, but it's really around just how do we provide the solutions as a process, right? And so that's, I think, the thing that really gets me excited um, that this thing that I love and find the most interesting is so critical now to how we think as an industry. It's not, so, the, not the end know, game, it's the process of how we get to the end game. <laughs> productivity is such an important part of what we're doing when it comes to what you're talking about, developer tooling, um, the pipeline. Uh, some years back when um, I was really uh, pushing our Meister product through OpenMake software, which generated build control files instead of coding a make file, I had one developer tell me, but you know, this is a craft like, cob you know, like cobbling shoes. It has to be a perfect make file. And my response to him was, but I don't want just one pair of shoes a quarter. I want <laughs> lots of shoes. <laughs> and I think that has been a challenge for us. Um, and I think it's going to continue to be as we go into cloud native. What do, what do you see, especially around the database problem? Because, you know, we're going to get distributed databases now. And I mean, really decomposed database, a database per container. How is, the, how, how is that going to be solved? Are you guys thinking about that? Or have you put your head around it and how that will be, how that's going to be changing and making this productivity model more difficult? That's a great question. And, and let me just, you know, caveat this with, I am not a database person, um, though I now work at a database company. So I'm learning and NoSQL was something I hadn't really poked at at all. Um, but, you know, if you look at things like sharding, um, and NoSQL itself, um, and then also the evolutions of the different ways of, uh, you know, the uh, creation of Aurora um, or Spanner um, as, as, you know, this highly scalable solutions. A lot of, there's a lot of different approaches to it, and I don't know that there is a, uh, a one-size-fits-all for all business cases as a possibility, um, because when it gets down to the end of it, you have to think about what are the what are kind of the key elements you want to be able to support? Correctness, um, uh, scalability, and latency, right? Uh, and regardless of whether you're using something like Spanner or you're using something like SQLite, you know that you're you're trying to pick a solution that's going to dial in those three things uh, the most usefully to your immediate business need. Um, but I, you know, one could argue that. Uh, data store is in a, in a sort of a weird way is sort of like infrastructure. Um, there was that, well, it's, you got a DBA, right? And, or maybe you've got some software developers who kind of have a, a decent understanding of, but it should just work, right? Let's, you know, we, the, the main thing is the app, right? It's the app, it's the user experience. 
and not all companies uh, historically maybe invested as much as they needed to or should have been um, in optimizing databases. Now, part of that could be that you were either like an Oracle uh, or, or what was some of the other Oracle better Sybase, you know, it's like, oh, okay, well, we're going to, you know, we're going to go all in with Larry and we're going to hire a DBA and oh my gosh, aren't, aren't those Oracle DBAs expensive? And yes, isn't they there... were <laughs> still are probably. Um, but, you know, and so maybe there was also then a reaction against that. Like we don't want to be, you know, tied to Oracle um, and, you know, maybe we can all just be good enough with the MySQL DBs because those are free and it's just cost of maintenance. And I, I will admit that knowing almost nothing have acted as a MySQL DB admin and going in and manually had a calendar event uh, <laughs> once a month where I would log in and I'd rotate the bin files for the backups, right? Because I didn't really know what I was doing. And uh, you know, I think a lot of companies really haven't appreciated the level of investment that you need to have around data management, which is ironic because data management, I mean, without your data, you don't have a business, right? And um, it's a really critical detail. Maybe it's not as interesting and it's harder to talk about than some cool new user-facing thing that you can demo. Um, I remember at, at reInvent back in, I don't know, 2017, and they were talking about Aurora and Werner was up there and demoing it. And I'm like, this is the most boring demo ever because we're looking at a terminal file that 20,000 people are staring at. And I'm like, you know, I can appreciate something in terminal, but it's not very compelling, right? Um, so I don't know, it, it's interesting. And I, like I said, I'm, I'm almost purely focused on the, the, in, the development infrastructure for MongoDB, but I will say that one of the cool things about Evergreen, for example, is it's, it's dog fooding. So we've got MongoDB in the back end, uh, a couple of them um, for various parts of it. And, you know, one of the, the, the really interesting things about a CI system is that if it's successful, people start wanting to use it more and more and you have a scalability issue. Right. And so it's not just your compute scalability, it's also your data scalability. And so I have been learning a lot. I've been there about three months. So I've been learning a lot about some of the really fascinating scale challenges um, that that we've had as a as a business around supporting database development and how to how to ensure that the quality, once it hits our customers, has been vetted as much as possible. It's a it's a fascinating problem. Tara, I have to ask you, you are so passionate about your whole career. I mean, what got you as a young person excited about this, this kind of thing back in the nineties, right? Uh, this isn't a secret, but I think a lot of people don't necessarily know this. I was not meant to be in computer science. I, I was a computer science major at UC Santa Cruz, um, <laughs> not by choice. I, I had gone to, to university intending to be a history literature double major. Yeah. I'm a humanities person. <laughs> But my, my parents were like, you got to do a STEM major. You're, you know, we're not going to pay for it. And I'm like, oh. wow. That's so great. I, I didn't, I didn't think so at the time <laughs> and I'm still not completely convinced. Um, I'm completely convinced. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> well, I barely graduated. I was a terrible student. It was really hard for me to get engaged. It wasn't something I was super passionate about. And so one of the things I love about development infrastructure actually is again, not having heard of it. You know, I, I, some, some friends of mine at, at UC Santa Cruz at the time, most students got internships either at Borland, which was just up the road in Scotts Valley, or at another company called SCO or Santa Cruz Operations, which back then was actually an operating system company. Later, you know, some, some, some people might know it turned into a patent troll uh, 
litigator, which was a oh, terrible right. end to what started out <laughs> as an auspicious company. Um, but, uh, and everybody wanted to go to SEO because SEO had the hot tub. Oh. It, was, it was a converted beach house in yeah, Santa Cruz. But, but I ended up at Borland and I ended up on the team that I was in, which was the build team on the languages division because I had some classmates of mine are like, hey, we got an internship opening up, come try it out. And that was, you know, running the builds, making the golden master floppies. I don't know if you can see it. I've got some first ship boxes back there for Borland C++ 4.0. It's got, it weighs like 30 pounds. It has, <laughs> it has 50 three and a half inch floppies and 85 and a master floppies. floppy. That's and, something we haven't heard in a while. <laughs> yeah. And it has physical paper books because this oh is pre-internet, right? Wow. So the, the box is huge. <laughs> it weighs a ton. And so it's like, you know, figuring out how do we, how do we make this better and, and started to do tools development. And, and then when uh, Borland, uh, I don't think this, this, I mean, it's 30 years old, so it's not, this isn't a secret either, but the, the Windows 95 developer SDK went out with a Borland compiler uh, because at the time the Windows compiler was just a garbage. Um, and that, and that led to, angst and acrimony within Microsoft because the compilers and my, people in Microsoft are like, what the hell? Um, so anyway, Microsoft came in and basically hired out the Borland Languages team, um, including sending ridiculous offer letters by limo to the headquarters to like Anders Heilberg, who at the time was the, the author of, of the Pascal compiler at Borland. And he went to Microsoft and was, you know, created ActiveX and, or DirectX, I don't know, critical technology. So that was all Borland people. Like Microsoft became the compiler powerhouse because all Borland people, which also was the first lawsuit I was aware of about <laughs> companies suing Microsoft for unfair practices. And then after that, I went to Netscape because a bunch of Borland people went to Netscape. And, uh, and Netscape went from, you know, was Borland was a very well-established, more traditional company, um, you know, the 18 month to 24 month uh, development life cycles, heavy QA investment, very slow and stayed. It was a great place to learn. And then you go to Netscape, which is the beginning of the internet era. It's madness and mayhem and Coke can towers and, uh, you know, people not going home or bathing, uh, you know, the whole, yeah. <laughs> the whole like startup lifestyle. Yeah, I mean, that was a, that was a big time. I mean, I remember just the computers that I worked on the very first, like TRS 80, the trash eighties that radio yep. and being like, Ooh, it's a computer. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, I was working on ADM three A's and VT 100s at, at, at school. And then I had a Mac SE that was my personal computer. You couldn't do that much with, didn't even have a terminal. Um, so I'm at Borland and like, okay, I don't really know anything about anything. Uh, and I know that I'm not really interested in application development. It just doesn't interest me, but, but, oh, okay. I'm actually, I have people who are like on, on the cubes in either side of me and they have problems and I can help solve their problems, like their immediate problems. So there was that instant gratification nature of, oh, this is broken. How why is this broken? Okay. Let me help you figure it out. Okay. I can write a little tool that will like prevent that in the future or that will help us debug it in the future. And it kind of expanded from there. You know, and a lot of, of my classmates ended up there as well. And, you know, so this familiarity of a team of like, nobody knows what the rules are. So we're just going to make them up, right? The first version of Tinderbox, for example. So again, this, this is a, it's meant to pull from a CVS repository. So this is pretty good. Mm -hmm. um, and it would pull it to a local machine with a Perl script. It would, and, and also, by the way, the, the CVS repository was on a Unix platform and we had Mac and Windows we had to run software to emulate 
the uh, file systems on Mac and Windows to pretend to be Unix systems so we could run the CVS commands, right? So that was a whole thing. I mean, this is like really primitive. So we have these, you know, actually in the first clients, it was Perl on, on the Unix platforms, but it was bash scripts on Windows because we didn't have anything else that we could use at the time. And it was Apple script on the Macs. And this is the 68K PowerPC days, right? And so everybody had little custom scripts and it would pull the CVS repository, execute the build command, and then send a, a little text to the mail server, which would then grab that incoming mail, parse the text, and then append it to an HTML file that you could then look at with a browser. So the first continuous integration, web-based continuous integration system was basically rows of text in reverse chronological order with either red or green. Wow. Right. And that's, um, you know, Tara, even though <laughs> what you just described isn't terribly far from what a lot of companies are still doing. Um, <laughs> that is the scary part. We still have such a long way to go to mature our DevOps sure. pipeline. But, um, but here's kind of the thing that really cemented me as a tools person. So this guy, Lloyd Tab who at, um, had went, went on to, most recently he founded Looker, if you're familiar with that company, and they were acquired by Google a couple of years ago. So they were doing data visualizations. But he was one of the authors of early HTML, right? He invented HTML tables, he and Jack Paulus and a couple of other folks. So he came over and he's like, huh, all right. So here we have this, like, the, these, this incoming text. And he had just invented tables in, in the browser. And so he wrote the the file was called Lloyd.cgi. That would of course take, it is right, <laughs> and it was you know in his honor and 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 gosh and God bless him for this. And it created a table that had commits over time by operating systems, and then would also do the offsets. Now an HTML offset at the time there was no CSS, nothing right. That was really hard to do, but we then we could see for each column. You know, you go, there's the check-in. Okay, these 15 operating systems started failing after that commit. Okay, what the hell happened with that commit? And that was, and that was like, whoa. Like that's something that's so cool. I mean, I'm working on, I'm working on the browser team. Like I'm shipping the browser, the Netscape Navigator, like the beginning of the internet era. And the, the thing that we did with Tinderbox was so much more exciting to me than just, oh, the browser. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> like I had no interest in working on that. But this, this is cool. Right, and then just from there, everything went mad. Um, Bugzilla, Bugzilla is still being used to this day, uh, which is just fascinating to me. Um, hey, some of these tools are very, very sticky once they get in there. And that yeah. is part, part of the problem with being able to evolve the pipeline is that some of these tools get super, super sticky. I mean, is, um, you know, Rebecca brought up the cybersecurity discussion with her influencer. Yeah. And one of the one of the big problems that I continue to see companies have is we have such static DevOps workflows, regardless of what tool you're using, they're pretty static. If you don't have the generation of the SBOM in there, you're going to have to go revisit a lot of workflows. And that's why I'm so excited about the CD events from the CD Foundation, because Absolutely. everything that you've been talking about, if we can build it through an event base, like through cloud events, boy, does it sure allow us not to be so invested and so sticky so we can actually pivot because it's not been something we've been able to do well. We do, do not pivot well on the DevOps side. Everybody everything thinks, we do is so scripted. Yeah, and everybody thinks that, that uh, you know, the, the snowflakes are required and they're really not, they don't have they're to They're not. 
right? And I think, you know, beyond even cloud events, I, I point a lot at what open telemetry is doing on the other side, on the logging side, right? And, and enabling things like observability, but also, you know, enabling a, a investment for Prometheus and all these other tools, um, Honeycomb, to have standards that de-stickify. But also it's not just a matter of de not de-stickifying, but also enabling broader and more robust integrations because yes. you have this common and quicker, this common layer, right? And what does that open up? And so we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there eventually, it, but it is a, I think this is probably one of the hardest challenges of development infrastructure is, it, is, no overcoming, doubt that, is. overcoming that need to, well, but my, you know, my use case is, unique among millions of use cases like well, actually it really isn't it's not it's really not and you know when it just when it comes to an event plane you have you, you have a payload you're passing a payload off and that's really all it boils down to is just yep. passing a payload off through that event plane so hopefully we'll get there because uh we have been preaching agile development for i don't know how long but our our devops is certainly not agile whatsoever well, there's a there's an ironic thing there was you know I, I give talks about this I, I gave one at CTO summit called angst Aikido you know it's like the art of of influencing culture change with development organizations you know rule number one is engineers hate change right even if they have a bad Don't system they? even they if they have a bad system they hate change what is it they're change agents yeah. themselves but they don't like change exactly it's like even a bad system they're familiar with it they know how to work with it and they feel efficient Right. And so I think that was things the state of DevOps report and developer productivity are really talking about is like, you might feel efficient, but are you actually efficient? Change is hard. Yeah. <laughs> Change They're is still hard. cobbling those make scripts. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Tara, I want to know about your t-shirt. Tell us about your uh, t-shirt. <laughs> there we go. Sorry. It's uh, so women who code. Um, is when, you're, when you're being excited, we can see it. <laughs> yes. uh, yeah, I should have, I should have worn my CD Foundation t-shirt, but uh, I have. Uh, no, I want to hear about women who, women who code. Great organization. So, yeah, this is a great organization. I've been associated with it off uh, to varying degrees since about 2014. Um, it's been around since about 2012. So I guess, yeah, this is the 10 year anniversary. Um, started out, it was founded by um, a couple of women, um, one who is now the CEO, Elena Percival. And this organization was about building a strong community of, of uh, enabling women to support each other to have successful tech careers. Nice. Um, it is oriented around uh, technical topics, but not exclusively slow. We've you know, got project managers and product managers and the, that type of thing who are also participants. Um, and it has, particularly since pandemic, when everything kind of got upended, there's now hundreds of thousands of members worldwide uh, supporting each other through, um, uh, you know, on, ongoing learning opportunities, um, uh, mentor programs, um, what they call the, uh, uh, what do they call it? The, there's the, the local networks, and again, worldwide, uh, one of the, the fastest growing is uh, in uh, Colombia, for example, um, wow. huge, huge tech in LATAM and Nairobi and Africa, also huge emerging uh, tech communities. Something good always comes out of crap and yeah. the pandemic sucked, but there's so many of these organizations that have formed and grown because people were sitting in front of their computers and they wanted to change what they were doing. I have yeah. a child that wasn't in tech, but she completely reinvented herself because she didn't have a choice during the pandemic and now she's thriving. So it's it's really cool to see all these like girls who code and women who code and I'm trying to get my granddaughter involved because she wants to learn how to code. 
and she's yeah. 13. And so we're trying to find a, a program here. She doesn't like to listen to grandpa very much. Who's very good at it, but I think <laughs> well, that's, I, I think so find, finding your tribe is important. And a lot of, a lot of the really successful communities within women who code are around either career transitioners or returnees. Uh, women who code had a great or uh, a partnership with VMware, the Tara, not Tara, my Tara, but Tara, T-A-A-R-A uh, mm -hmm. program in India that uh, I think the goal was to return 15,000 women who might have stepped back from tech careers because of, you know, parenthood or, or other personal reasons, you know, how to get them back uh, into high tech. And it's been enormously successful. Um, and it's, it, it's so important that we, we really sort of demystify tech as a, as a career choice um, for anyone, not just women, but for anyone, because there are never enough people for the roles, um, even in, in as, as you said, you know, your, your daughter was doing something else and is now in tech. Tech is always hiring um, and tech can be done remotely, which, you know, and now we, we have shown through pandemic that it can be truly done remotely. Mm -hmm. um, and the more that we can build um, an awareness of anybody can get into tech, including me, who never should have been in tech, I should have been a history professor somewhere, you know, we can be in tech and we can be <laughs> successful and we can change the world. And, you know, we're changing the world all the time. What kind of age group does women encompass that, that word? Is it college, high school, what, how? No, it's, 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 it's adult. It's, it's adults. It's, okay. I mean, you know, you could, certainly there's no restrictions, Right. Um, but I think that the target demographics are um, maybe towards the end of college, but but more post-college. That's there, what I was wondering. Yeah, there's other organizations that are younger. I was actually part of one called Chick Tech, which I hate the name, <laughs> um, but uh, which was targeting actually middle school and young high school uh, girls who might not consider STEM at all as a, as a future possibility. So actually it would have been targeted people like me uh, at the same age. So that was really fun too. But yeah, there are a lot of organizations out there. And you're the CEO. The, the, the CEO is, I, I've heard her speak before. She's super dynamic. Maybe you can make an intro and she could be one of our guests. I think that would be amazing. I would be happy to do that. Rebecca, what were you going to say? No, I was going to say now, Tara, because I've noticed that you mentioned it earlier that you, you started out in 1993 and you've seen, you've been through several changes throughout in the industry. What is the biggest change that you're hoping to see in the next few years to come in this industry and how it will affect women coming into this industry and minorities, just everybody overall? For the next few years? Yeah. Oh, that's an interesting one. Well, let's, let's go back to the, uh, an earlier premise, which is change is hard <laughs> <laughs> and it happens slowly. Uh, you know, I, 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 I was talking about this at Women Tech Makers um, back in 2019, where when I was in school at the time, um, about 40-45% of, um, of the students in CS programs uh, were women. And around 30-35, somewhere in there, percent of high-tech industry, which at the time was much smaller than it is now, um, but, but at the time um, were women, maybe as much as 40%. And also uh, women in technical roles, not, not just you know, HR, sales, marketing, that kind of stuff. But then you fast forward to the early 2000s after the first tech crash and also the emergence of programming culture, you saw that drop enormously, both in uh, uh, women um, and also people of color. Um, and we're only now getting back to the 
the pre-crash numbers from a demographic perspective, at least in the United States. And what so, that? what's that? What caused that drop? I, well, I think it was a combination of that big crash in 2001, right? And, you know, I, I was hit by that crash. I, I was 7 million on paper once, you know, it didn't, we went IPO and I was like, I'm rich. And then, you know, a month four of the six month employee blackout. Just, oh, well, bye. That was a whole bunch of zeros just disappeared. Um, Anyway, uh, yeah, I just, I think that the industry change, it got a lot faster, more aggressive, you know, a lot of, um, and we still see it to this day where we have uh, people who have, are very charismatic and could be selling you BS, but they can get VC funding because of who they are, right? Let's, I, I thought, <laughs> rhymes with Tracy's just going in. <laughs> yes. I mean, okay, you know, can I say this? Like, <laughs> I mean, let me just say this and you can edit it out if you need to. But like, I think we all threw up in our mouths a little bit when we saw Andreessen Horowitz giving, you know, $500 million to Adam Newland, right? Like, what, what was that all about? So do we, do, you know, what do I see in the near term? I, I think the foundation has been laid. I don't know how fast it will happen, but you have VCs that are either run by women and people of color or focus on opportunities um, for founders who are women and people of color. And we're starting to see some, some successes. That is one thing that is huge. And then also, again, for organizations like Women Who Code or Code 2040, which is a, a university oriented organization to get people of color uh, better landings into internship programs and then subsequently, you know, hired into full-time positions, you know, as the demographics change, we're also putting through things like developer productivity, understanding the impact of culture on business success, the understanding of, of uh, uh, heterogeneous employee bases on financial success. There's, you know, Boston Consulting and McKinsey have been producing and Harvard Business been producing reports for years that an all-white male industry is not as successful as one that is not right and so that that i think the momentum is building and it's slow and we're going to backslide but that is evolving and i think that's super powerful and then beyond that i think the power of cloud computing for all the things that it can do ill and for all the problems that you can have like you know the, the cloud vendors make it really easy for all of a sudden you have a fifteen thousand dollar credit card bill that you weren't expecting uh -huh. um that's a whole nother problem but you know, you no longer have to go uh, into you know max out your credit cards, buy all the, the the hardware at Fry's, and then borrow some lady's garage to found a new company. Right. You can pay for resources by the second and code on your smartphone, and take an idea to market. And I think that also is a fascinating um, evolution of how we think about technical innovation and the opportunities that it have. And then the final thing that I think we used to make the joke that every company is a healthcare company because you know, figuring out how to do healthcare for your employees was, was considered a really hard challenge, but everybody had to do it, right? Now, every company is a tech company, mm -hmm. right? Oh, yeah. And so you don't, you know, working at Google, uh, Google is a big company or Microsoft or Amazon, but let me tell you, there's companies that are bigger, like financial institutions that have more technical uh, uh, employees than any of the FANG companies do, but we don't really think about them necessarily as tech companies. Right. right, but they're using tech because tech is now becoming a common language. Well, you know, my, my, all the companies, yeah. uh, uh, you know, my tiny little town here, everybody's got a website, everybody can do order online, everybody's got a payment system that requires somebody somewhere to be doing technical work on their behalf. It is now pervasive. 
Yeah, so and you have to add the whole level of cyber, cybersecurity that has to be wound into every single, even in my own house, right? I have to have a level of protection for my company because I'm doing stuff that can impact. And it is, it's, it's amazing though, to think about being able to code on your phone, you know, to be able to, to do things that you could never think of doing in the past because you yeah. don't need all that extra hardware. Absolutely. So I, you know, it's tech is part of our human existence now for good or ill. So, you know, those of us who are in tech and are in positions of leadership as much as possible, it's part of our responsibility. And this sounds a little goofy, but I believe it firmly. It's part of our responsibility. Like, what are we enabling, right? Uh, and when, and what are we enabling for the positive? We have to be thoughtful about that. And you could look at like the whole Cloudflare fiasco. You can't be neutral, truly. Being neutral is actually picking a side. Right. right, right, and so it's it's important. But you can you know you can also point at some truly amazing things that happened: the Arab Spring, and people putting the Google DNS servers as graffiti because they were trying to shut down the internet in the companies or in those countries. Like that's powerful, right? But it can also be used right. for you know stalking and God only knows what, right? So it's tech, and I guess another way of looking at it is tech is is taking all of our human humanness and putting it on steroids. So the amazing things are that much more amazing and maybe the not amazing, you know, negative things are that much worse. Um, oh, wow. So that, well, we got to wrap up here. I can't believe we've been going for 45. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I know. But that was an amazing place to land. And I really appreciate that was a great, you guys agree? That was a great, great place. I was going to ask you to kind of sum it up, but you did it without it. Any prompting. So we are so excited that you were here. This is the first time the three of us have, have kind of kicked off and relaunched the show. So you were an amazing guest for us. Oh to, gosh, to thank you. <laughs> we really appreciate you being here. Um, Tracy, Rebecca, you guys have anything you want to say here to wrap up before we go today? No, I just want to say the absolute thank you to Tara for being here and sharing her, her background and her experience, because it really does tell a story, not just about Tara, I mean, a lot of the things you talked about, I have, we have, I'm surprised we didn't meet before CD Foundation, to be quite honest, but <laughs> it's, this, it, it's a journey that we've taken in DevOps, and it was a really, really fascinating view of what that journey looks like and where we're going. Wonderful. And yeah. thank you so much, Tara, it was a pleasure. <laughs> well, hopefully one of these days we can all get together in person and have a couple of drinks and keep talking about, you know, solving the world's tech problems. You bet. Well, thank you so much, Tara. And thanks for everybody who tuned in today. Um, look forward to seeing you all at our on our next Tech Strong Woman episode. Thanks. Have a good one.